you will please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're taking a break from our sermon series and the Sermon on the Mount, but we're staying in Matthew's gospel to look at Easter according to Matthew. And so we will look at Palm Sunday today on this Palm Sunday and uh, Good Friday. We will observe what he did in the Lord's Supper. And then on Easter morning, we will look at the beauty and the glory of his resurrection. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, Matthew's eyewitness account of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. This is God's holy and authoritative word to us this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put them, they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Your word, your spoken word written down for us so that we could read it and we could know it. So Lord, now as we look at this event in Jesus' life, his, his entry into Jerusalem on this Passion Week to die, would you help us to understand, would you help us to see the importance of this event, and Lord, would you change us? We pray in Christ's name, amen. My children and I just finished reading Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian is the third book in the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. They are for young and old alike, and I highly recommend them to you. But to give you a, a, a brief synopsis of what's happening in this story, Prince Caspian is the rightful ruler and, and right, rightful king to be in the uh, Telmar kingdom. But his evil uncle, Miraz, was seeking to kill him so that he could take the throne and have it for himself and also for his newborn son. And so Caspian escapes to the savage country of Narnia, and he soon finds himself in trouble. And as he finds himself in trouble, he blows the magic horn that once belonged to 
Queen Susan of Narnia. And he was told that when he blew this magic horn, it would summon help from the deep magic of Narnia. Well, the help does arrive in Narnia to help Prince Caspian and the Narnians take back the area. But the help that arrives is the return of the four children who you may remember from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. But now these children are, are teenagers, but they're still very young. And they meet Prince Caspian in the wood. And as he meets them, he figures out, he discovers that they are the great kings and queens of Narnia who have been told to them in all of the old stories. And his reaction to them once he met them was probably the similar reaction that you would have when you met them. They were not quite what he expected in the form of help. <laughs> Teenagers coming to help save Narnia? He was expecting kings and queens who were much older, much more balanced, stronger kings and queens, not children coming to help him. Well, in our story today, we have a similar episode where a king is riding into Jerusalem, a savior who is not quite what we expected. When the people in and around Jerusalem saw that this amazing teacher and this amazing prophet who they had seen perform miracles was about to enter Jerusalem, they fully expected him to become a great and powerful king to come riding in on a war horse and to kick out those nasty Romans and to take up the throne of his kingdom and to rule with might and with power. They did not expect a humble king, a gentle king, to come strolling into town on a donkey. That's not quite the help that they expected. That's not quite the help that we would expect. This is not what we expect of a king, of a savior. It's not what we expect of a God who is coming to rescue. And that's our problem. That is at the core of our problem in our own lives. We try to create our own king. We want to create our own savior. And if Jesus doesn't meet that expectation, well, then he, he must not be God and he must not be a true king at all. Because we expect a, a savior who's going to fix all our problems, right? We expect someone who's going to come and take away all the pain and sin in the world right then and there. And again, if Jesus doesn't do as we expected, then he must not be good. So go our sinful thoughts. We do not expect, nor do we hope, for a humble king. But that is who Jesus is. He is a humble king. And I, and I hope today that you will discover that Jesus is the king, he is the savior that you have always longed for, even though he did not come as we expect. And so as we look into this passage, Matthew is going to show us here in this, his account of the triumphal entry that Jesus is a humble king. And he's going to show us this by telling us three things about the kingship of Jesus. First, Jesus is a peaceful king. Second, 
Jesus is a stirring king. And third, Jesus is a determined king. So first, let's look at the fact that Jesus is a peaceful king. We are very familiar with this account. We see in verses 4 and 5 that according to the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah, Jesus was going to ride into town on a, on a donkey. That's how the king, that's how the Messiah would come. And so on this Palm Sunday, the beginning of what the scholars call the Passion Week, the final week of events in Jesus' life before he would die on the cross, on this day we read in this scene that just before this happens, there was a great crowd following Jesus and his disciples, and the crowd had seen Jesus perform miraculous deeds and perform miracles and healings and all these things and so they knew this must be the one this must be the messiah he's the one who's going to conquer the romans and he's going to restore the the nation and the kingdom of israel i mean look look at what power he has he's going to do it and so as he got ready to enter jerusalem they took their cloaks off and put them on the road they went and cut down palm branches that's why the children were waving palm branches and they paved the road so that he could enter into jerusalem and they were waving the palm branches as well and one of the reasons they would do this is because essentially that was kind of a national symbol it's kind of the national flag of israel at the time it was also a symbol of of peace Uh, but at this time You know, being a Jew in Jerusalem, it was not too bad. There was not too much persecution going on. Except there was this one very inconvenient part of life. And it was the fact that there was this heathen nation called Rome that was occupying your land and dictating your way of life. And so again, naturally, the Messiah, the one who's going to come in to save, is going to kick out the Romans, right? He's going to kick out the bad guys, and he's going to restore the religious order and set up his kingdom. But again, as we look closer at this account, we do not find a, a military campaign. We do not find a cavalry or infantry or militia, we find one who comes in peace. We find a peaceable king. Jesus comes to town on a donkey. Now, I drive by every day on my way home, about four or five donkeys and a pasture. And when I drive by them, I don't think, wow, are those the most beautiful, magnificent creatures you've ever seen? (laughs) They're donkeys. There's all other kind of symbolism that goes along with that that I'll leave to your imagination. (laughs) But why? Why does Jesus come riding into town on a donkey? Well, it's because he was riding into town on a donkey to act out the fact that he was a humble king. That he came in peace. This was a deliberate act of symbolism so that the people could see And so that we could remember the way in which he approached the cross to die. Jesus riding into town on a donkey is a visible parable. 
Even in churches, there are stained glass windows with the Savior on a donkey because it's a visual reminder of his humility. Remember the the Savior who was born in a lowly manger? Remember Jesus, who was the son of a carpenter? Remember the second person of the Godhead who was rich beyond all splendor in heaven, yet he became poor? And the one who came into town not in a presidential limo or a war horse, but a donkey. He came into town on a farm handle, a beast of burden. So when you think of these things, right, they're all memorable, right? No one remembers what the kings and queens of the last four or five hundred years, where they were born and what kind of seat they sat in, but you remember a manger. <laughs> you remember a feeding trough. You can't tell me the make and model of Barack Obama's limousine, but you can tell me that Jesus rode into town on a donkey. These are memorable acts. They're visual parables. To see that Jesus is a peaceable king. He came humbly. He came peaceably. Not to overthrow Roman power. He came to overthrow something far greater. Something far more powerful. He came to do something far more everlasting. Jesus came to overthrow sin and death. And so the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. And as Jesus came to town peaceably, he came to show in in practice, he came to show very visibly what he taught his disciples just days before in Matthew chapter 20. He told them, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the king, just not the king we expected. He's better. He's the best king. He's a humble king. He's a peaceable king. Secondly, we see that Jesus is a, is a stirring king. As he entered Jerusalem, there was lots of fanfare and the shouting of hosannas, which means save, save now. And the people, they apparently knew the prophecies and they knew the promises, and so they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, a very prophetic word they were shouting from Psalm 118. And we read that the whole city was stirred up. This word stirred up means to shake, means to agitate, to quake. There was quite the commotion at Jesus' arrival. It was extremely provocative, really, what he was doing, coming to town with all this pomp and circumstance and fanfare, because up until this point, He had kind of kept his public ministry kind of quiet. He didn't really announce himself to be king. But at this point, he was doing that. His entry was very much the entry of a great king. 
And so why all the shouting? Why all the fuss? Well, this is what Jesus does. When the people met him, when they saw his miracles and his deeds and his teaching, when we meet Jesus on the pages of Scripture, when we have the Lord's Supper and we taste and we see what he has done by his sacrifice, you can't help but be moved. You're supposed to be stirred up when Jesus comes to town. And then the burning question came from the crowd. They asked, you see in verse 10, who is this? Who is this guy? And this is the question for you today. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You see, you can rationalize from science and from geography and even history that there's no God. That's all just fairy tale stuff. You can rationalize from your own experience that because you have not seen a burning bush or because Jesus has not performed some personal miracle for you, then there must be no God. But at the end of the day, you still have to deal with Jesus. Who was he? Who is he? Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with Jesus? I love the way that C.S. Lewis contextualizes it for us normal folks. You've heard me read this quote before, but if you don't mind, I'm going to do it again from mere Christianity. And this is what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who is this? Who is this? Folks, if you have not considered... Jesus Christ and who he was and who he claimed to be. If you have not asked this, then do so today. Who is he? If you're feeling stirred up this morning, then that's good. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He, he stirs us up. He makes us feel uncomfortable. He makes us look at him and ask, who is this? Who is he?
What did he come to do? Why did he die that he, like he did? You have to deal with Jesus. To me, it's a rather silly thing to say, I don't believe in God. Because when someone says that to me, I just say, well, that's all well and good. But what are you going to do with Jesus? Who is he? Who is this? I love the pastor, Eugene Peterson. He put it eloquently in one of his books. God is not an abstract idea that can be mastered. He's not an impersonal force that can be used. He's not a private experience that can be indulged. And this is certainly true of Jesus. He's not an abstract idea. He's not your little personal secret way to happiness. He was not just a good moral teacher. He was God. He was the Savior. He's the King. So what are you going to do with him? He is the King who has come to stir you up. And make you feel very uncomfortable by what he did and what he says. And so we have to ask, who is this? Last, we see that Jesus is a determined king. If you look with me in verse 10, we find five words that are very easy to gloss over and not think very much about. The first five words of verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem. Think about this. Jesus entered Jerusalem. Jesus is a determined king. He willingly and intentionally entered Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This was the week of his death. Jesus was determined. He was resolved to enter Jerusalem to die. Jesus is singularly focused. He is going to the cross. He's the humble king. He's the stirring king. He's the determined king. He was determined to serve and to give his life as a ransom for his people. He came to Jerusalem for the very last time. He came to be crucified. There was nothing else that remained for him to do during his earthly ministry but to die. All that was left was for him to be offered as a sacrifice. On Calvary. He did not come to offer a private sacrifice. He did not come to die on the cross in secret, but a very public display so that every eye would be fixed upon him. The one who came to town, gentle and humble, would go to the cross in the same way gentle and humbly to die. As Isaiah prophesies in chapter 53, he was oppressed, 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The same folks that were shouting at Jesus' triumphal entry, Hosanna, in just a week's time, are now the same folks shouting to crucify him. Crucify him. Yet Jesus humbly, unassumingly, peaceably, and determinedly went to the cross to die for them. To die for you if you put your trust in him. What is all this commotion about? Who is this? It's Jesus. He's a humble king, a loving king. He's the best king. He's the king who is going to die for his people. So how do we respond to our king who is far greater than we could ever imagine. Hosanna. I know this is a Presbyterian church, but why don't you repeat it after me? How about that? Hosanna. Hosanna. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Crown him Lord of all. We will sing. Let's pray. Father, we've read this passage. We've seen it many times. We've heard the story, but let us not be unmoved. Forgive us where we have treated Jesus very lightly, as weak and and, and mild and, and irrelevant, because we see here that he was very determined to do what he came to do, and that was to give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you that Jesus entered Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, and he did it to die for us on the cross so that we may have everlasting life. Father, if there are any here who have never considered who Jesus is, would you impress upon their hearts that he is the king, that he is the savior of all. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.